episode 29 of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. With Derek Gottlieb, I'm Kara Furman. I'm excited to report that this week's episode on equity and what we mean with the word began with a class and grew out of a teaching challenge. Considering equity in relation to educational justice, our guests zoomed in on how the word equity lives and is used in context. They highlighted the ways in which a word like equity can enter into popular discourse and serve as a placeholder, holding people to vague and often unreasonable, even demoralizing, standards. They called on practitioners to inquire into their commitments in context and shared that the field of educational ethics is a place that supports this work. And one more bonus, they gave a compelling and coherent articulation of what analytic philosophy is and how it can support educators as they think in the midst. Welcome. It is excellent to see both of you this morning. Thank you for joining us. And Mira, could you start by introducing yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having us, Kara. Uh, I'm Mira Levinson, and I teach at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thank you. And Harry? Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Harry Brighouse, and I teach in the philosophy department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you. Well, excellent. Uh, It is really great to uh, see both of you here this morning. Uh, Today we are talking about, you know, broadly speaking, equity in education, educational equity. The connection between education and equity, whatever, however we want to frame this. So, what I would like to start with is asking uh, you to describe how your interest in this issue was initially piqued. Is there a particular moment? Is there a particular story of how your uh, intellectual interests came to focus on this issue? Mira, can we start with you? <laughs> yes, thanks, Derek. Um, yeah, be- I came to Harry with this, actually, because we had a very specific um pedagogical challenge at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So I was in charge of um, a faculty group that was designing a new required course on educational equity and opportunity for all 650 of our master's students each year. And that's an extremely exciting opportunity. Uh, And we had some shared learning goals and shared concepts that we wanted students to engage with. And we were looking for some common readings that we could use uh, to help students engage with those concepts. And so we found Iris Marion Young on Five Faces of Oppression, and we um, you know, settled on chapter two of uh, Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed to think about tools for transformation and so forth. And that was all great, Beverly Daniel Tatum, to think about identity. And we were looking around for a good common reading on educational equity. And what was fascinating is that we couldn't find one. There are lots of really terrific uh, pieces of philosophical work on equity and equality and what those mean and so forth. Um, Although nothing that we could really find that was comparatively short and digestible by non-philosophers. And of course, there's a whole lot of writing on educational equity that takes on specific concepts of equity, of educational equity, and, you know, talks about how to 
um, say, realize that particular uh, conception in practice. And those might be strong. But what we couldn't really find was a piece like Iris Marion Young's or, you know, like Beverly Daniel Tatum or something that helped us think about educational equity as a concept with many conceptions. Uh, and that was accessible. And so, um, as we were sort of grappling with that challenge, uh, Harry and I and our third co-author, uh, Tatiana Jerome, who was also working with me um, on the course design, we thought, well, let's, you know, take a hand at trying to write something ourselves. Excellent. And just before uh, I shift focus over to Harry, you, you're mentioning a third co-author. Would you uh, talk about the piece? Well, just give the title of the piece that you are talking about. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is a piece called Conceptions of Educational Equity, uh, and it came out in AERA Open in September 2022. Um, although I will say that we initially just wrote it for use in this class, and it was after we got feedback about how well it went in the class and how useful people found it that we thought, oh, let's go ahead and try to publish this more broadly. Excellent. Thank you. And, and we'll obviously link to that in the uh, show notes. Harry, would you uh, talk a little bit about how, I mean, both in response to uh, Mira on this particular question, but also uh, how your interest in issues of education and justice and equity uh, have come together for you, perhaps over the course of your career in general? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's a lot. Um, well, I was very eager to do what um, Mira suggested because I, you know, I agreed. I mean, I, I, I know the literature pretty well. And there is one paper by Christopher Jenks from the 1980s, which uh, it works well in a class um, for, for a philosophy class for students who aren't necessarily interested in education, but it doesn't use the term equity. It uses different language and it's somewhat, uh, you know, some students find it very exciting, others less so. Um, and so I thought it was a really good idea to write something, you know, tailor-made um, for instruction. Um, I, you know, there are two different questions. One is, how did I get interested in justice in education? And the other, how did you get interested in the concept of equity? Um, yes. So I've been interested in, in justice in education since I was eight years old or so. You know, I, I, I vividly remember the moment in which I realized that some of us, you know, that I was in a class with a really good teacher and that my friend was in a class with a really bad teacher. And I thought how unfair that was. Um, and I just have thought about it all you know when I was 12 my two best friends were I was sent to a school where the expectation was that you would go to college um and they were sent to schools where a school well a school where it was impossible to go to college from there and that seemed sort of deeply unjust and unfair to me um so I've been thinking about it basically all all my life um the concept of equity I don't think anybody used it at all um, in the 1980s. I think it only entered the language in the 1990s and maybe even quite late in the 1990s. And it's always seemed to me that it's a way of it, the, the, 
the the word initially was being used as a way of avoiding of avoiding being specific about what you really cared about. Nobody wants to use the word equality because equality is if you take equality very seriously and you think it's equality of outcomes, well, nobody believes in that, right? Nobody actually wants to pursue that monomaniacally. So equity is this sort of placeholder word. Um, and then what I think what happened in after it started being used is, as happens with these words, is people started thinking they were all talking about the same thing. And the truth is that if you sit down in a, you know, if you sit down with a group of educators or a group of education professors who are not philosophers and you ask them to write down a definition of equity in education, they will write down different and conflicting definitions. Um, and so what excited me about the this project was just trying to help people see that when they use the same word, they're not necessarily meaning the same thing. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And Mira, I really appreciate how you focused in very specifically. And before I turn to the next question, I want to ask you to draw back a little bit um, because I associate your work with thinking about kind of contextualized justice and how teachers navigate context to find ways towards justice. Um, And I'm wondering if you can talk about equity within that frame a little bit? How does it speak to some of the larger projects that you're engaged in? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Kara. Um, So let me answer this in two ways. One is actually coming back to the shift in language among non-philosophers that Harry talked about from equality to equity. I think that part of that shift um, is precisely because non-philosophers, say in education, are really grappling with the impact of context and and the impact of contextual differences. Right. So um, whereas one of the things that philosophers, uh, at least, you know, say analytic philosophers do enthusiastically and well is strip out contextual differences and, you know, sort of contextual complications in order then to try to understand a concept or contrast different conceptions um, with some clarity, right? Non-philosophers and say educators, policymakers, people with, you know, who are stakeholders in education are always in some way thinking about and grappling with context. Um, and many of the educators say that I teach at Harvard are particularly grappling with working in contexts of systemic injustice and attentions to systemic and structural racism and, uh, you know, often sexism, xenophobia, whatever, right? And so um, I think that the language of equity 
that many educators uh, have embraced is taken by them to signal an attention to inequality of context in which then questions of equality come up. And so it's become a shorthand. Um, uh, and I think that a lot of what, say, Harry and Tatiana and I end up doing together is trying to sort of sort that out and clarify when and why does thinking about the context of the work uh, that we're doing as educators matter and uh, and how do we think about that interplay? So that's one thing is that I actually, um, I, I think that that might be part of the reason for the appeal of the language of equity. With respect to your question, Kara, about like how does this fit in with my own sort of broader research interests and research agenda, uh, there I actually have like two sub-responses. Um, so one is that, uh, as you may know, uh, I'm really trying hard to help um, foster the creation of a field of educational ethics modeled after bioethics that, like bioethics, is informed by and can help to inform uh, practitioners and policymakers, uh, and that um, means that that we're uh, at least partly driven by questions coming out of the field, uh, not just questions coming out of theory, uh, and that we're providing answers uh, or at least ways of thinking. Right? It may not be answers, but it may be say um, clarifications or you know processes for thinking through something or whatever. Uh, that are helpful to those who are in the field. And often that may also require theory building, right? So it's not just that this is a really, um, this is a solely practical enterprise, right? A lot of what we need to do in order to foster, I think, the development of a field of educational ethics is to uh, continue doing uh, theory building. So uh, in that respect, thinking about educational equity is uh, sort of part and parcel of, I think, you know, working on this field of educational ethics. But then the other sort of sub answer uh, does relate to what you brought up, which is uh, my concerns about um, how we help educators think through their ethical uh, responsibilities and challenges in contexts of um, contextual injustice and even just like lack of resources and so forth. And there, I think that's actually um, why it's so helpful to make clear that educational equity may be a really beautiful aim, but we have to be honest with ourselves that we will never, and in fact, as a matter of just like logic, can never achieve every conception that lies under, say, the concept of educational equity. And I think we set ourselves up for failure in education if we hold ourselves to standards that are both practically and even theoretically just impossible to meet. Um, and so 
that doesn't mean that we shouldn't set high expectations for ourselves and for our students and for our colleagues and for our policymakers and and so forth. Like we should, but we also need to be humane and realistic. Um, if say, you know, to shift over like Doris Santoro's uh, language of, you know, demoralization, if we want to avoid demoralization, because part of what we need to accept is that we cannot create a fully moral world, right? And we cannot actually at any one time achieve a perfect moral outcome. And so in that respect, like we we need, just need to be more comfortable with partial successes. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to ask you, you've kind of both answered this in a lot of ways, but I'm going to ask you now um, to narrow even more and go to what we usually ask second, which is sort of what have you found about this issue? And I'm going to ask you specifically to answer it through your tools as philosophers and as analytic philosophers, um, as you, you use the phrase, um, you know, if you parse the word, what is it that's making it so challenging? What is what is specifically in the word? Um, and before just jumping into that, can you define um, what analytic means? You kind of defined it in in your talking, but what is it, what is an analytic philosopher in your um, definition? And Harry, why don't you start because Mira talked us around it a little bit. Um, so what is analytic philosopher <laughs> and then how do you take that, that and apply it in a way that's useful for teachers to something like equity, which I see your paper as having done. So what analytic philosophers do really is two different things. Um, one is they literally analyze concepts. They analyze ideas, they analyze arguments. And so they look at whether arguments work. When you see a concept, um, you work out what's really packed into that concept. You break it down into its parts um, and you try and get a precision. I mean, the way I like to think of it, you try and get a precision that is more precise than you would ever need for any practical purposes. And the reason you want, it's just like, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're running, you want to run faster than you would ever need to run in the race because you want to know that you can run fast enough in the race. Similarly, you want to be as precise, more precise than you'll need for practical purposes, so that whatever practical purposes you end up having, you know you'll be precise enough for those. Um, and so that's sort of, that's, that's the analyzing part of it. We also make, uh, you know, first order arguments, um, and we make first order arguments in, in moral philosophy, which is where we're located, um, you try to be very clear about what your assumptions are. You try to be very clear about whether those assumptions actually lead to the conclusions you want them to. And you try and find out whether your assumptions, you know, you try and make as clear as possible to other people where you're going wrong. You know, the ideal, the ideal for a philosopher is that when you've written something or you've said something, if there's something wrong with it, the person who you're talking to can see it immediately, even though you can't. Um, so that's how I think about analytic philosophy. 
Now, in this particular case, and I actually, until we did this, I hadn't really understood that this is what conceptual analysis involved. It's not that I had never done any conceptual analysis, but I actually thought a lot of the project we did was empirical. Um, we were finding out how people use the word equity. Equity is not a word like water. Water denotes a natural kind. There's this stuff, water, which we know the chemical composition of. And water means, I mean, exactly what water means might differ from person to person. But when you're analyzing water, you're trying to, that, that concept, you're trying to find out what, um, you know, somebody who uses water to refer to vodka is making a mistake. Straightforwardly. But somebody who uses equity, yeah, I mean, somebody who uses equity to refer to love is making a mistake. But there are lots of ways of understand, uh, uh, that people use the word equity. There are lots of concepts there. And we were reading a lot of material um, by other scholars who are not philosophers or by, um, you know, we looked at the OECD definitions. We looked at definitions given by the California um, Board of Education, um, which were um, at odds with one another. The California Board of Education has two definitions in one document which are inconsistent with one another. But we were looking at those and we were thinking, okay, this is what you might mean by equity. This is what you mean. We know that people might mean by this by equity because we know that they actually have meant by that by equity because that's what they've told us. And in a way, it made, I think when we started the project, I w wanted to be more prescriptive about how you should use equity. And by about halfway through the project, I had no desire to be prescriptive at all. I just wanted people to help, I just wanted to help people see what they actually meant when they used it and what other people meant when they used it and how those might be different. Um, so that was the sort of finding out that I thought we did. The finding out was surprisingly empirical in a way. I don't know whether, Mira, did you have the same experience or? Um, no. So, I mean, I agree with you that there, that we sort of uncovered these different uses in the paper, but that was, that was not a surprise to me at all. And in fact, in some, I mean, I guess it wasn't, it may not have been a surprise to you either. Um, uh, but in some ways I actually felt as if what we were doing when we were looking for examples was rather than educating ourselves about how people uh, conceptualize equity in the real world, I think we were looking for examples of different conceptualizations of, say, equality of what, or alternatives to, you know, equality of what that also are often used to as shorthand, uh, with equity as shorthand, such as, say, you know, the least advantaged or even adequacy or, you know, like... Um, uh, that we were looking for examples to help illuminate the, the different conceptions that sort of as philosophers we already knew, right? Because this, I mean, this is part of the interesting thing 
about the work we were doing in this paper, at least in the first half of it, we weren't trying to do anything that's novel for philosophers at all, right? I mean, uh, so, you know, anybody who's taken, uh, who's like majored in philosophy, uh, right, who's, or who's taken a single course on, you know, on, say, equality uh, in a philosophy department or in political theory or whatever, they would be familiar with all of the different conceptions of equity that we identify. Um, uh, and in fact, they might think that we were being imperfectly precise about, you know, some of them. Although I think we did try to be actually quite precise in what we said and delineated. Um, and so in that respect, I think, for me, at least the looking for examples was looking for things that felt organic to educators um, that could show these different conceptions at work. Um, so like when Harry refers to, say, the OECD or the California uh, Department of Education, I mean, they are each in, you know, sentences that are right next to each other, simultaneously disavowing equality of outcomes and embracing equality of outcomes and, you know, simultaneously uh, advocating for equality of growth um, or equality of opportunity um, and embracing um, actually some sort of adequacy measure um, or, you know, like, uh, and, you know, subgroup concerns and individually oriented concerns. Like it's all, it's all over the place. Um, and so uh, I think just helping educators see that that was at work um, was, I thought sort of rhetorically useful because it, I think as we've learned as students have engaged with this article, that it takes, it helps educators and prospective policymakers and so forth, you know, various educational stakeholders come out of the stance of, I believe in equity. I am an equity oriented educator, right? You know, we must educate for equity. And um, as a, I don't, I don't mean to, I want to say dogmatic assertion. I don't mean the dogmatism actually to be bad. Like, I'm glad that they believe in equity. But to help them see you can still have an identity as an equity-oriented educator while admitting that what equity means is really fuzzy slash multiplicitous and, you know, and that your orientation as an equity oriented educator does not mean that you can actually achieve equity on every, uh, you know, line simultaneously. So for me, actually, the aha was much more in the second part of the work that we did together, which was less in finding empirical examples of different conceptions of equity, equality of growth, equality of outcomes, equality of, um, you know, group comparisons, etc. And much more in terms of thinking about and how does this like fit in with other values that um, people have thinking about short versus long term uh, outcomes, thinking about whether they're looking for equity within a 
single phenomenon or practice versus like looking for more radical social transformation, etc. Thanks very much. Um, I would like to try to combine a couple of the questions that we tend to ask at this um, at this stage, both to uh, learn more about the work that you've done in specific terms, and also to start thinking about uh, what uh, sort of high level educational decision makers, such as policymakers, district officials, that kind of stuff, should take from this work in terms of like directing their own uh, sorts of practices. So you, you've already alluded to it uh, to some extent, but what are the sort of some of the competing conceptions of equity and what that that you found in your work and sort of what are the value differences that each one of these conceptions seems to prioritize uh, in terms of entering into a, a competition with other uh other forms of that term. Whichever one of you would like to take that question first, uh, please feel free. Let me start briefly by saying I actually don't think that there is any one conception that people prioritize consistently right so i think it like i think in some ways the way you phrased it was as a like you know what what is and what conception of educational equity is Anne committed to versus what conception is Barbara committed to? Sorry, Derek, go ahead. Sorry, let, let me try to uh, clarify that question. I never ask very clear questions. It's a huge uh, flaw of mine. Um, I, I'm asking about the the way that certain con not certain people hold certain conceptions of equity, which commits them to a particular thing, but the way that certain conceptions of equity are committed to certain views of certain problems, et cetera, and the way that those commitments are in conflict with each other, regardless of how they sit <laughs> alongside conflicting commitments within a single individual. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, e all right. That's really helpful. I think that that also is not a fixed trade-off, um, right? So uh, say in this paper that we wrote together, you know, we uh, distinguish among equal distribution of outcomes across populations, equal resources allocated across schools, districts, states, or nations, equal experiences for each child, equal levels of growth or development for each child or each learner, and then equal outcomes for each learner. Uh, and each of those, of course, can be measured on a number of different fronts. And I th it kind of depends, this goes back to Kara's question about contextualization, right? It really depends on what practice or policy we're looking at as to which of those uh, conceptions are um, traded off against one another or in conflict versus which ones might reinforce one another. Um, so I think it's hard to answer that, you know, in, in the abstract. Uh, and similarly, I think, you know, when one thinks about, well, is it actually these equal whatevers versus thinking, you know, focusing really on the least advantaged in part because one has a certain 
adequacy conception uh, at work um, or and then like thinking about other values that we might care about safety, liberty, efficiency, whatever, right? Like, again, sometimes these are, um, uh, these are compatible with one another, and sometimes they're in conflict with one another. Thanks. Harry, do you want to jump in? I don't know, 30 something years ago, Jonathan Kozol wrote this book, Savage Inequalities. And in Savage Inequalities, he documents the unequal spending between poor and rich children. And he demands equal spending between poor and rich children. And when uh, spending is very unequal between poor and rich children, moving toward equal spending is probably moving you toward equal outcomes. Now, um, that's our, it's archaic now. I mean, now it's the case that, um, at least as much money is spent, um, per student in, in urban schools as in many suburban schools. Um, outcomes are still unequal. No surprise, because there are all sorts of other resources, uh, that you need to learn that are not there for, ch for, for poor children. I mean, Rural schools actually don't tend to get as much spent on them. So rural poverty is different. Um, so now, um, moving, uh, the demand to know we, we have to keep equal resources plays against equalizing outcomes. Um, so if you really thought that, so, so when you have very unequal resources that penalize the poor, um, the move toward equality of resources looks very much like the move toward equality of outcomes. And once you have more, more or less equal resources between them, sticking at equal resources looks like keeping away from equality of outcomes. And so there you, the trade-offs just, they just look different depending on the situation you're in. Excellent. Thank you for that. So the, the second part of the question then for both of you is like, how should the fact that there are these different and competing concepts of equity affect the ways that uh, policymakers and district leaders take up specific, uh, you know, their, their capacity as rule makers and sort of attach that to, I don't want to say like, a, a not a moralistic project, but like an ethical sort of commitment to use education in a particular way to uh, do good in the world, for lack of a you know, specific term. So can, can I start with that? Um, I, here's the comment I made earlier about not wanting to be prescriptive. Um, I kind of meant that um, in I don't, I, I don't feel I mean, there are better and worse conceptions of equity, but I'm sort of, I want people to, philosophers aren't entitled to tell people this is what you should believe. Um, they're entitled to give reasons for it. But um, uh, so I, I want people to think about what they, what they really care about when they care about equity. Now, one of the things that happens, I think, in these documents that you read is people betray that they think the, the vagueness and the inconsistencies in the ways that they define equity makes it look like they've just thrown off a definition in, you know, like they didn't think about that. They just define it one way, then define it another way. They didn't, they didn't really think about what it was that they really cared about. Think about what you really care about and have reason to care about. 
and then you, whoever you are, are in a are in a much better position than me or I are. Like we're in no position at all to really make a judgment about what you should do because you understand your context better than we do, much much better than we do. You understand what um, levers you have to press. You understand what what's politically feasible for you in a way that we don't. You understand what your workforce looks like in a way that we don't. Um, and that's true at all levels. So, I mean, that's true, you know, a, a principal may, a principal in one school may have a, may have um, staff who she knows can do things that another principal in a different school knows they, her staff couldn't do. And so we'll direct them differently. Um, and might, that might lead to quite sensibly organising schools differently in pursuit of the same conception. Um, in pursuit of the same conception, understanding you're never going to fully reach it and that there are other values that might prevent you. Um, and similarly uh, among you know, school district officers, similarly among uh, state superintendents um, or offices, you know? So, um, but it really does, if what you want is that every student benefit equally from whatever the school does, that is really different from wanting to ensure that uh, the, that every student has a similarly good outcome. And you should understand that. I think, I don't think people really do want, I mean, I think what, what you find out when you think about that is, what you care about is not actually that every school, uh, every student benefits equally from what the school does. You care about something a bit more ambitious than that, um, and a bit maybe less precise. Um, but think about it. Thank you very much for that, uh, Mira. I'd, I'd love to hear your response too. It seemed it sounded to me both in in what Harry just said and in uh, some stuff that you said earlier, Mira, that there's there's an issue created by the fact that there's that people have some sort of uh, effective with an A investment in equity is a thing, and that this investment is doing a lot of uh, sort of cover story work. There's something behind the fact that people can just toss off a definition that doesn't seem to make any sense, or like have two competing definitions in a certain sense of policy that allows it to go unnoticed in a similar way that you were uh, sort of talking about. And so I appreciate what Harry said about like be thoughtful about what matters to you and then act accordingly. But I, I would love to hear your response to that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think basically I would second everything that Harry said. And in some ways this gets back to Kara's question to me much earlier about like, how does this work fit into uh, my say scholarly or even philosophical goals more broadly. And I think that as people come to take the complexity of a, of a value or an ideal like equity more seriously, what that really does is it necessarily opens up a conversation about values more broadly, not just equity, right? So, um, you know, as, uh, say, in taking Harry's example 
about is it that you want each student to benefit equally from what the school is offering versus, say, do you have some conception of uh, an outcome that you want all students to achieve, such as being prepared uh, to go on to secondary school and be successful there, right? Um, uh, and you realize, oh, it's actually that outcome that I care about. Well, why do you act? Why do you care about their being prepared to go on to secondary school? Not because you actually care that much about ninth grade, right? Like it's actually because you have a certain conception of the aims of education uh, and how education fits into. Like wh why education is valuable for people's lives, um, and so in fact the the master's students uh, at Harvard, um, the Graduate School of Education, who are enrolled in our education policy and analysis program, which I think is about 150 of them, they actually just uh, reread our article. So they had all all read it already as part of the equity and opportunity course that they took in August, and then apparently they were. Um, uh, assigned the article. Oh, actually, wait. This I think you need to edit out because I think I discovered it was a different article of mine that they had read. So sorry. Let me start again with that. Um, <laughs> I just I was playing through the conversation in my head and realized, oh no, I'd misunderstood. Let me start instead. Um, when I taught the conceptions of educational equity article to students uh, this summer one of the things that really enabled students to do was talk about not just equity, but um, what their own values were around education and the aims of education. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I think that's the other thing that doing this can really do is open up further conversations about the hard ethical choices that we face in education and make it possible uh, to have conversations about our uncertainties there, even as, as you mentioned, Derek, we really want to foster an identity toward internally and toward others as being ethical educators, right? We never want to suggest that we might be unethical or unjust or unfair or inequitable. And at the moment, uh, what that has led to is this um, culture in which we must assert our commitment to certain foundational values like equity at all costs and be unwilling to admit that we face hard trade-offs and that uh, we can't actually act in ways that will help us truly achieve equity. And so we engage in this moral pretense that is really hard and really like taxing, I think. Harry, go for it. Just a very standard, you know, slogan in philosophy, which is that ought implies can. And it's just not the case that you ought to do things that you can't do. And I think, you know, um, I, I, I find it kind of ironic that it's philosophers who are sort of often accused of utopianism and being ideal theory and whatever, who um, are often the people who say, no, like there are hard trade-offs. Um, 
don't I've had students say I've had education students say this to me is that in their in their teacher ed classes they felt like what they were doing was ideal theory they were being told what everything you know what the really great thing would look like and then in my classes they're taught how to think about how to think about hard trade-offs how to think about what you should do when you can't do everything that you would like to do when you're in circumstances where it isn't all going to look great in the end um and it that's what that's what moral agency is about it's about managing the trade-offs that the real world gives you um so as i say i i i think philosophers are sometimes thought of as these sort of ivory tower whatever thinkers but in fact moral philosophy is very sensitive to trade-off questions in a way that often um in my experience um other scholars of education are not really Thank you for that. This is this sounds so similar to a conversation that I was having just recently with Winston Thompson, our colleague, uh, about the most recent Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse movie. <laughs> totally, whatever. Kara? <laughs> uh, I guess you'll have to listen to Derek's other podcast for that story. Um, I, I would be really remiss in ending this conversation by asking for um, pedagogical next steps because you've both been so explicit about the fact that all of this is contextualized and ought doesn't mean can. So I'm going to phrase the question a little differently in a way that I personally prefer anyway. Um, Harry, I see you as talented at many things, but one of the things that I associate you with is really thoughtful um, teaching with undergraduate students. Um, and Mira, I really think about your capacity to work specifically and directly with, with teachers um, in a range of contexts. So if you're willing to take on that mantle, I'm going to ask you to speak from that lens for the last question. Um, instead of asking what should teachers do, I would like to hear a little bit of Given this work, um, in addition to reading your article, what have you done with undergraduates? What have you done with teachers around your work with equity? How have you facilitated these conversations um, that's been informed by this work? Um, and either one of you can jump in. Mary, you're nodding, so maybe you're ready to go. Sure. Um so as you know, uh, Kara, one of the things that I spend a fair amount of time doing is uh, working with um, people to help develop uh, what I call normative case studies about um, uh, ethical challenges and educational policy and practice uh, that are truly hard problems that are the kinds of problems that uh, Harry was just mentioning uh, and yes, making it okay for people, even desirable uh, and necessary for people to talk about these hard uh, ethical uh, choices and trade-offs um, with one another, as opposed to pretending that we can make everything, you know, perfect. Um, and and Mira, so, what is yeah. what is normative? Uh, so normative just means value laden. So the reason that I call these uh, normative case studies is in part, you know, I'm at Harvard. The classic case study that you think of coming out of Harvard is a Harvard Business School case study. And those are wonderful cases. Uh, and they often do actually prompt thinking about values, but they're often written in order to help, uh, say, 
the users understand questions of strategy or human capital or leadership or something better. And the point about these being normative case studies is that these are actually designed specifically to help people think about values and how uh, values are at work in our everyday lives in education. Um, and so uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in a school leading a conversation among uh, about 60 people, um, department chairs, heads of development. This is a um, private school, um, head of uh, operations about actually a case that we have on uh, in our book, um, Dilemmas of Educational Ethics, um, on braid inflation. And um, so uh, we had actually, so we'd read the case on great inflation ahead of time and we're facilitating these small group conversations about it and then having a whole group conversation. And uh, they were wrestling with a lot of different issues um, about the meaning, you know, about the meaning of grades, about where their school was positioned in the ecosystem of other private schools, both in the area and around the nation. What would it mean to try to exercise leadership in grading? Um, and, you know, could they pull others along with them? How did this in, uh, interact with uh, conceptions of care that they had and, you know, uh, and their admissions policies and so forth? And um, some of the ahas that actually that, it was interesting. The head of school was who was in my group, um, not coincidentally, um, uh, uh, you know, was about the different conceptions of educational equity that they were wrestling with. And afterward, we sent him a copy of the article that Harry and I had written saying and Tatiana you know, um, and saying, you know, you might find this interesting. Right. And so, you know, that conversation, uh, they are going to then have us bring to their whole faculty in a couple of months. And so we're going to run it with a few hundred educators. Uh, and I think, you know, as Harry said, like, this is not a prescriptive thing. I don't have answers for them. Um, but I think they really found it useful through a very concrete case, in this case, thinking about grading practices, um, in private schools, um, uh, it, I think helped them really reflect on what their mission was as an institution and how equity played into that as they thought about, um, all of the different, again, the different choices they make at each stage, right? Who they admit, and they're much more diverse student body now leads to different thinking about grading and grading practices than when they served a much more homogeneous WASPy uh, set of students, say, 30 years ago. And, um, and, you know, issues around mental health also are playing a different role in their thinking about these things. So that's an example of how, um, you know, of a recent conversation I had with educators uh, as they were thinking about the the context of their work, the ways in which the choices they were making at each stage of entry into school, student what constituted student success within school, 
and what their aims were for students upon leaving this school. And, you know, the aims really were that students would get into and then thrive at highly selective and elite institutions of higher education, most generally. Um, and what that meant for their different, for what equity meant at these different points and how choices in one space, like say grading during students' times in schools, interacted with those other choice points and with the contextual uh, world that they were living in as a whole. Thank you. What a really rich example. Harry? Yeah, so I'm going to also um, endorse the normative case studies as a method of teaching. Um, I, maybe this is too much detail, but, you know, I started my teaching career as a very traditional kind of lecture. I mean, basically a bad teacher. I just lecture a lot. I was, you know, I paid attention to the students, but um, I didn't understand how, I, I didn't trust them. So I didn't trust that they had the ability to do the real hard intellectual work that I was doing in front of them. Um, and I and I didn't have the skills to, you know, to, to organize their life so that they, to organize the classroom so that they were doing those things, even if I did trust them. Um, and uh, I've sort of, over the last, you know, it's very kind of you to say that, Cara, over the last 15 years, I've really shifted an enormous amount and when Mira and her team started creating the normative case studies I suddenly sort of had this tool basically that I could use when I'm teaching about education which is only about a quarter of the time almost all my teaching is undergraduates about a quarter of it is about education and when I teach about education it is mainly not there are usually one or two or three or four teacher ed students in the class, but usually that's not the target. It's uh, students who are interested in education and philosophical issues. Um, and what I, I, I still have them read plenty of philosophy, um, but I have them read philosophy, uh, you know, standard philosophical papers, um, but I have them read those around the normative case studies um that mainly that Mira has developed but, but you know and her team has developed but you know I've, I've also been able to develop similar things um uh using using um their work as a as a template um I have a I do I have a really great quote which I sort of gave earlier but it's from a from a student who having taken I don't know, a couple of my classes, one about education, one not. Um, and she sent me this email in her first, about halfway through her first year as a special ed teacher, um, which she had gotten her teaching certificate and, and, and gone into the field. And this is what she said. She said, I wish they would give us more readings like those from your class in my school of education. They're much more realistic than most of the readings we did in our teacher ed classes, which were more idealistic. Actually, I think that tension is something I struggled with a lot throughout the program, um, but didn't fully understand why it was so frustrating to me. In my practicum, I would see my teachers facing problems like the behavior case studies multiple times a day. Then in our content classes, these very real problems were watered down and approached in terms of ideal theory. 
we talked about the benefits of inclusive classes being preventative for reflecting in action, but we never had conversations about how this looks in imperfect practice. Um, and, I, you know, so I, I think there are two things about the normative case studies. One is they enable students to at least think through um, and, and have some intellectual resources that when they move into practice, um, that they're ready for some problems and they've already pre-thought some of the, at least something about what they value. But the other thing is, and this is a very non-practical uh, benefit, is it helps, stu it, it helps students, it helps me, it helps scholars become much more precise about what they actually care about in real contexts, in contexts where real decisions are having to be made, um, which for almost all of us, almost all the time, are not big, you know, they're not big decisions about how to change the world. They're micro-level decisions about how to do the as well as you can in a particular uh, choice situation. Um, so I have used uh, Mira's work an awful lot ever since, you know, and I was an early, I mean, I was an early adopter, but I was also an early, you know, I got early exposure as soon as she started working on this stuff. I, I, I was sort of exposed to it um, before things went online. So I sort of feel lucky to have been able to use it so well and for so long. Thank you so much. And thank you both for really bringing um, us back to the, the micro classroom and what happens there in these, in these small but really large decisions. So really appreciate that. Yes. And thank you both for being here in general uh, and spending this time with us. This is maybe going to be edited out, but like a podcast question specific note is maybe we got to revisit that policy question. We keep getting pushback on it because we are literally talking to people who are not trying to, you know, arrive at conclusions that then are suited for implications. So like, you know, something for Karen and I to think about going forward. Thank you for being here is the point. Thank you. Good. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thank you very much for having us. This was really fun. And that is our show. Many thanks to Harry and Mira for taking the time to talk to us. As always, do subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and a review to help others discover us as well. The email address at which you can reach Derek and I together is thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. We also have a form linked in the episode description if you'd like to suggest future topics and or guests. So, for Derek Gottlieb, and in two weeks, when we put up the next episode, I'm Kara Furman, and we'll see you next time.